How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Thank you for his love for you. Thank you for his love for your word. And I pray that we will understand what you're saying to us from this story today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I really agree with that prayer. Let help us to understand, Lord, what you are saying. Because it's, it's a tricky passage. There's so much happening in this passage. And in fact, instead of just reading it through outright, so you just get a whole lot of words, I'm going to slow it down a little bit, and we're going to sort of examine things as, as we read it through. And I've got some children who are going to help me we're going to kind of try and visualize what's going on. So, we want this passage to come alive in our imaginations. And sometimes in order to do that, I remember one, minister, one preacher saying that sometimes you've got to travel back in time. You've got to travel back to that place that the passage is talking about. All right, so we're going to get into time-traveling helicopters... And we're going to fly back to a place called Caesarea, which is in Israel, in Judea. And we're going to jump out of the helicopter, and we're going to land in Caesarea and have a little look at what's going on in our passage. Now, you might remember the end of the passage last week when Debbie was preaching. Paul was talking to a governor the governor of Caesarea, whose name was Felix. And right at the end, I want you to just file this away for a bit later on. Right at the end of that passage, Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come with Felix. And Felix responded by becoming quite frightened. And he said to Paul, go away for now, and when I've had an opportunity, I'll summon you back. And after two years had passed... Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, or Porcius, I'm not quite sure how to say that. And Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he left Paul in prison. So here we have Caesarea today. You can see a bit of the Circus Maximus there. That was the place where they did those chariot races. You can see that's the same area there. There's that kind of a, a rectangular place. That's possibly what that looked like can see that it was quite a good little town. It had a nice wall around it. It had an amphitheater. Lovely little seaside resort. Okay? And Paul was there under custody. Wrongly under custody, really, because he hadn't been given a trial yet. And even though Judea was a bit of a backwater in the Roman Empire, the Jews were, were very troublesome people. So a little bit of that kind of background. The Jews were very troublesome to the Romans. They insisted on their one God. You might remember the Romans loved to have number of gods that they worshipped. And these Jews were always complaining about people disrespecting um, their faith or their temple or their traditions. And so they gave the Roman governors a hard time. And so we're going to pick up from verse 5. 
Festus then, oh, by the way, let's, uh, let's have a quick look at the, at the map before we carry on. So here we can see Caesarea, the little um, seaside resort. There's Jerusalem. So picture it, Jeruse, the distance from Jerusalem to Caesarea is the same distance as from London to Brighton. Exactly 86 kilometers, about 55 miles. Okay? And about a month ago, when Paul Thomas was speaking to us, do you remember those um, 200 soldiers, the 70 horsemen? Anyone remember those swords and the spears and the horses? And we all were galloping around. All right, well, when Paul was imprisoned or arrested in Jerusalem, he was sent to Caesarea, and that's the distance they traveled. And it's not some weird place. This is the stomping ground of Jesus. Children, can you all see Bethlehem here? What happened in Bethlehem? Absolutely, Jesus was born there. Can anyone see Nazareth up there? What happened in Nazareth? Who, who came from Nazareth? Who grew up there? It was Jesus as well, wasn't it? There's the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus walked on the water. All right, so this is all part of the countryside that Jesus walked around in, okay? So, let's return to our passage. What happened next? Festus then, after arriving in the province, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea three days later. So Caesarea was the seat of the Roman governor of, that, of Judea. That's the whole province here. Can you see Judea? There's the whole province of Judea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with Festus, requesting a favor against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill Paul on the way. So Paul had been under custody for two years because Felix, the previous governor, wanted to please the Jews. So why on earth would the Jews in Jerusalem suddenly want to put him on trial again? After all, he's been in, uh, imprisoned. He's been under custody. He hasn't been able to do anything he wants. I suspect that Paul was possibly given, he was given, the Bible says he was given some freedom and the church were able to minister to him while he was under custody. And I suspect that he was converting the Jews in Caesarea bit by bit. And I suspect that the Jews, the temple in Caesarea, were getting a little bit uptight about this and they probably sent word to the high priests in Jerusalem, and that's why the priests wanted to arrest and really put Paul on trial. And that's why they made this um, request of Festus. So, we can also remember there were those 40 people who had made an oath, those 40 men who had shaved their heads and made an oath to kill Paul. Right, so they were probably still, two years later, they were probably still lurking in the background as well. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody in Caesarea. This is verse 4. And that he himself was also was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, Have the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, have them bring charges against him. 
And after Festus had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And I can imagine Festus probably got on his steed with some Roman soldiers and he galloped down to Caesarea, right? Jerusalem in the hills, all the way down to the coast. And those Jewish men, those Jewish priests got on their donkeys and they followed on behind him. Because it says then, on the next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. So, to illustrate this, to try and capture our imaginations, I would like Re-Ray to come forward, please. So, Re-Ray, that is our Governor Festus, sitting on his tribunal seat. And then what happened next? Paul. Paul arrived. He was brought down. Paul was in chains, and he had a Roman guard. So, could I please ask Ava to come forward? Ava, can you stand on that side? So, if you can just imagine that Paul is looking at Festus, so you could come a little bit closer. And could Akani, I thought Akani would love to be the Roman soldier looking after Paul. All right. Hold them nice and still now. We don't want to distract the adults. Brilliant. So Festus took his seat and ordered Paul to be brought. And after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. Michelle, could you come and be the angry Jews? Bunch of angry Jews. Can you stand on the other side of Akani? Thank you. So, the Jews came to, down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have not done anything wrong either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, there's Paul, and said, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? So despite the fact that this bunch of angry Jews have come down to Caesarea, hold your figures up nice and still, Festus is still trying to work this one out. We, pro we possibly need to take Paul back to Jerusalem because, you know, these, the Jews have possibly got other witnesses there. Who here thinks that Paul went back to Jerusalem, not having read the passage recently, perhaps? Hands up. Who thinks Paul went to Jerusalem? 
Okay? Who thinks that Paul didn't go to Jerusalem? Some people are not committing. Okay. Why not? If you, if you think that Paul didn't go, why didn't he go? Does anyone want to volunteer an answer quickly? Any reason that you could possibly think? Yep. So you think that he probably um, cottoned on that there was a threat against his life. Absolutely right. Can we have the next slide? Absolutely. Not fair. Paul, if you include this attempt at his life, they tried to kill him three times since his arrest in Jerusalem. There were no proven charges. He was held wrongly under custody for two years. And he possibly guessed at the plot to kill him. Furthermore, he was a Roman citizen. And, his, and he felt that his trial should be before Rome and not the Jews. But overriding all of that was that it wasn't in God's plan for him. It wasn't in God's plan for him. Does anyone remember all the way back to chapter 23, which was a couple of weeks ago, when he was first arrested in Jerusalem? That very night, the Lord appeared to him, it says in Acts 23, 11. But on the following night, the Lord stood near him and said, Be courageous, for as you have testified to the truth about me in Jerusalem, so you must boldly testify in Rome also. Okay, so he knew that there was this plan to go to Rome. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If, therefore, I am in the wrong and have committed something deserving death, I am not trying to avoid execution. But if, if there is nothing to the accusations which these men are bringing against me, no one can hand me over to them. And then he ended by saying, I appeal to Caesar. Okay, we have the next one. I appeal to Caesar. Wow. Then Festus had conferred with his counsel. He answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Did you know that it was the right of any Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar if their case or their trial had not been satisfactorily resolved. It was every Roman citizen's right to appeal to Caesar. In fact, it was an ancient, um, an ancient right, and I'll try and say it in Latin. It was called the provocatio ad Caesarem, or appeal to the Caesar. So what happened next? Things calmed down for a few days. So can, can you all put your figures down? Put your figures down. Thank you. Now when several days have passed, King Agrippa and Bernice coming to pay their respects to Festus. So there's a new character coming in now. King Agrippa arrived in Caesarea. Agrippa, by the way, was the great-grandson of Herod, the king of Judea, who initiated the murder of the infants in Bethlehem in, a, in a, that attempt to get rid of Jesus as a baby. 
Isn't that interesting? The great-grandson. So this is coming full circle. There's something amazing happening here. And in the next few verses, I won't read them all because it just it drags things out a bit, but Festus explained the recent events to him, which we've just been hearing about. And then he goes on to say, this is still Festus speaking to King Agrippa. When the accusers, the Jews, stood up, they did not begin bringing any charges against him of crimes that I suspected, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. This shows Festus's complete lack of grasping the recent history of that area, Jesus being there and dying and rising from the dead. He hadn't even heard about that. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So, Paul appears before Agrippa and the whole gathering. So, Rosa, can you come up and be King Agrippa for me? We're nearly there. Could everyone hold their figures up again? Could you stand here? You're going to stand right next to King Festus. So stand over here. There's not King Festus there. That guy. Yeah. So, this is what happens next. On the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice came amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought before them, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing deserving death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord Caesar. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him as well. Children, thank you so much for your help. You can put your figures down here and go back to your tables. Thank you for standing so still. Excellent. So that's the passage. What can we tease, from, tease out from this amazing story? There are many things, but I'd like to just highlight one thing. And that is, Paul could have short-circuited God's plan for his life at any point. All through this process, since Paul's arrival in Rome, he had many opportunities just to walk away, if he had kept quiet. Instead, he speaks out before the whole crowd in Jerusalem when he is first arrested. He asks to speak out. And this causes more chaos through all these chaotic movements and decisions. Paul has an opportunity, however, through all of this, to address four major leaders in Judea. The first one is the chief priests. The second one is the governor, Felix, that we heard about at the beginning. The third one, the governor, Festus. The fourth one, King Agrippa, 
who was, by the way, King Agrippa was a favorite in the court of Nero, the Emperor Nero. And he was the ruler of a southern part of Lebanon today. But why did Paul not simply keep quiet and walk away from the trouble? They couldn't pin any charges on him, after all. You know, and things just seemed to be getting worse and worse for him. Um, Ultimately, he was aware of God's plan for his life. And that plan did not include keeping quiet. But still, why? Why didn't he just walk away, get on a horse, and ride to Rome? If that was what the Lord had told him to do. And I think, you know, I'd like us to just reflect for a minute on the tribunal seat, which is mentioned in Acts 25, verse 6, where Festus took his seat at the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. This tribunal seat was an official place of judgment to hear a case. It was like, in those days, like a judge sitting down to decide in a trial. And that same word that is used for that judgment seat, is actually used for the judgment seat of Christ. And the word is bema, or bema, the judgment seat of Christ. Can we move on to the next one? And it appears here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive a compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad, to be rewarded for your good works. And that same word appears in Romans 14 as well and 1 Corinthians 3. This is not, a judge, this is not the judgment seat which kind of decides whether you're a Christian or not, whether you should be admitted to heaven or not. This is a judgment seat for rewards. This is like, you know, we've heard of doing works of gold, silver, or precious stones, or works of wood, hay, and stubble, and being rewarded for those works. That's the kind of rewarding judgment seat that this is. And this is the judgment seat that Paul has in his mind's eye throughout all of these proceedings, through all these trials and appeals and appearances. He has this judgment seat of Christ in his mind's eye. And all he wants to do is please and glorify his Savior Jesus through all of these appearances. And do you remember we said at the beginning, he, he speaks of this judgment to Felix at the end of chapter 24. The judgment to come. And remember, Felix became frightened because he was feeling convicted Paul was the prisoner, and Felix was feeling convicted and frightened. Isn't that an amazing thought? Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, you know, we can't ignore that judgment to come. We can't delay putting things right in our lives with Jesus, like Felix did. Remember, Felix put it off. He said, go away. I don't want to deal with this now. Come back another time. But, you know, I recognize that we can feel trapped and imprisoned, like Paul was. 
We can feel trapped by our circumstances. We can feel trapped by a job or by a relationship or by family. Perhaps some of us feel like we're being pushed around from pillar to post, like Paul was, by institutions, not finding a resolution. Perhaps some of us just simply wish something could be over and ended and stopped. But let's stop for a minute today, like Debbie was saying, and turn our eyes to Jesus and pray, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done in my life. And I just want to end with this one testimony, and I hope you don't mind, it's very personal to me. Um, Growing up, um, I had two severely mentally handicapped younger sisters. Um, They've both gone to be with the Lord now. They died about 12 years apart from each other. Um, But they had very special needs. Um, They never learned to speak. They never learned to make their own bed. They never learned to make breakfast. They couldn't even dress themselves. And my older sister um, was at home for, I don't know quite how old she was, maybe eight or nine, but um, she started to have fits. And so she needed medication, and so she had to go to her home. But through all the years, my parents went to visit her regularly, taking her for picnics, caring for her. And equally, my younger sister, well, she stayed at home. And, you know, my parents couldn't just go away on holiday at the drop of a hat. My parents couldn't even go out for the evening. Suddenly, everything had to be carefully planned and considered. But when we had those memorial services for my sister, when my sisters, when they both passed away, I gave the eulogy for both of them. And at both of them, complete strangers sometimes came up to me afterwards and said, your parents were incredible testimonies of God's love and care. (laughs) Sorry. And they were such a witness and testimony to me because of the way that you, because of the way that they faithfully cared for those girls through their lives. You know, and... My parents may not stand at the judgment seat of Christ because they've led hundreds of people to Jesus. They might not stand there because they've been, um, you know, missionaries in another country or written amazing books. But I believe that Jesus will reward them because they lived quiet lives, lives, lovingly caring for my sisters, always praying and believing that God was at work in their lives to heal them. They were constantly praying for their well-being and for their healing. Um, And he will reward them because they didn't just put my sisters in a home so that they could get on with their lives and have an easier time. They loved my sisters and they simply acted on that love. And they, my parents had to put their own dreams, a lot of their own dreams and desires to one side to do that. And that's why we have to say, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done in our lives and in our desires and in our dreams as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen.